Sacred Tension fans, my name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. Before we get started, I have, as usual, just two pieces of housekeeping. First, this show is only possible with your support. I already work full time and I teach three yoga classes and three meditation classes a week. And this show, in addition, takes about five to 10 hours a week to produce. So it's a lot of work. And if you want to see me continue to bring you interesting conversations every week, every Monday, then please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. In addition to this show, you will also get a patrons only weekly podcast called The House of Heretics, where my assistant Justin and I have early morning, unedited, uh, very not safe for work conversations about everything from uh, kinky gay sex to to uh, politics to ecumenism to all sorts of things. So <laughs> if that interests you and if you find yourself looking forward to Sacred Tension every Monday and if you wake up excited to listen to it, uh, then please consider becoming a patron. That will help me tremendously in making this show sustainable. It will help me pay Justin. It will help me upgrade to better equipment and better studio conditions and other ways you can support this show. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. That will help tremendously. It will help our digital overlords take notice of my show and bring it to more people. You can also share it with your friends on social media and above all, continue to listen to it and enjoy it because it is ultimately here for your enjoyment. Second, my colleague Matt Langston of the band Eleven D Seven and I are working on building a podcast network called Rock Candy Podcast as an extension of his recording studio. So we are looking for awesome creators who are interested in making fascinating, fun, enjoyable, quirky content. Uh, we're looking for topics, everything from horror to film to social justice to LGBT issues to climate change to science to literally anything under the sun as long as it adheres to our policy of creating a better and more just and more interesting world. So if you have a podcast or you are thinking of starting one, please reach out to me at stephenbradfordlong.com and I cannot wait to hear your ideas. If we accept your application in return for joining the network, you will get our entire backlog of music uh, from the bands 117 and the Jelly Rocks. You will get professional consultation from the studio and we will help you produce 
your show. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Tahil Sharma to the show. Tahil is a Southern California native born to a Hindu and Sikh Indian family. He is a nationally recognized leader promoting religious and secular pluralism, human rights, and social justice. Tahil works as the faith outreach manager for Brave New Film, an organization that champions social justice issues by using a model of media, education, and grassroots volunteer involvement that inspires, empowers, motivates, and teaches civic participation and makes a difference. Tahil also serves as an interfaith minister in residence for the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, and he is the L.A. coordinator for Sadhana, a coalition of progressive Hindus and as a religious director for the Office of Religious Life at the University of Southern California. Dahil, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. Uh, so this has been kind of a long time coming. We've been going back and forth on Twitter for a long time now, trying to find a time to schedule this. And you were brought to my attention, you were recommended to me by uh, lots of people on Twitter uh, as someone to come on to the show and talk, specifically talk about your activism at the border, um, at, at the U.S.-Mexico border. But it, it sounds like there's a lot more that we can talk about, so much more. So uh, before we get started, just tell us some more about like what you're passionate about, more about what you do, and what's on your mind, what's on your heart today. Sure. Thank you so much for creating a space like Sacred Tension to be able to share my perspective on this kind of Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Um, so interfaith advocacy has been a part of my professional career for the past six years now. And it's been a part of my actual life as an identity since I was born. Um, I didn't really come to terms with it until the Oak Creek shooting took place in Wisconsin at the Sikh temple that was shot up by a white supremacist. And, and how many I, years did that happen? How many years ago was that? That happened almost seven years ago okay. as well. Okay. Um, it happened August 5th, 2012. Okay. And since then, I've really been curious about the level of understanding that it takes to be in interfaith solidarity with other communities of uh, faith, spirituality, and humanistic tradition. Um, I've been a big advocate for promoting secular understanding on campuses just as much as in interfaith circles, but I've also been very clear about creating discomfort in religious and spiritual spaces when understanding topics of social justice and human rights. Um, and I think more and more every day it's becoming uh, the norm that we have to talk about these issues and engage in this discomfort. Um, and nothing more can prove that than what happened last Thursday um, in uh, uh, Christchurch, yes. New Zealand. Yes. Um, the shooting up of two mosques uh, in New Zealand by a white supremacist who decided to take on the narrative of white nationalism, supremacy, and so many other things that we consider as a part of our free speech norms here in the United States by conservative and very right-wing pundits. Right. So, okay, so 
right now we are recording this on the 18th of March, and and so the New Zealand Christchurch shooting is very, very, very fresh for all of us. And you know this this episode was originally meant supposed to come out, you know, m- you know, mid to late April or if not early May. I'm actually going to push it a bit earlier so it's a bit more relevant <laughs> since Christchurch is on all of our minds. So let's talk about Christchurch because what what is that a manifestation of and and what has your work surrounding that for the past few days looked like the culmination of what took place in Christchurch is basically re- a response to years if not decades if not centuries of the status quo we call injustice um we know that there is a great burden that religious communities take on for the injustices that they have promoted and seeing that then sort of culminate in political spheres and social spheres and economic spheres and now realizing that there's a time and place now for our communities of faith and spirituality, uh, for our communities rooted in humanistic and secular tradition or values, to be able to take up the helm of leadership and say that any other community that is attacked, oppressed, or marginalized is an attack on us, and therefore we have a responsibility to stand with them and fight for them. Absolutely. So, so this, so the Christchurch thing. Uh, and and for people who you know, if you live under a rock and you're just not aware, please go look it up with the caveat that it is deeply upsetting. So to just give some background on the Christchurch thing, a the gunman who was uh who who seemed to be really influenced by white nationalist and alt right ideology carried that ideology out. He took it to its most logical conclusion which is to commit acts of violence against minorities. And I think what is most horrific, I mean, I don't know, what's what's really disturbed me about this whole thing is that he live-streamed it on the internet for other, you know, white nationalist ghouls to 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 engage and enjoy. And and so this is this is deeply horrific. Um what do you want to see white America do in response to this the only response that's going to make sense to anything as horrific as this is reform okay and what does that look like that reform looks like really addressing all of the elephants in the room when it comes to white america i mean we've gotten to a point where Talking about race still seems to be a problem. Talking about privilege still seems to be a problem. Talking about the basic decency of other individuals and communities still seems to be such a difficult thing to talk about. And the fact that it can't be done means there isn't a willingness to change. Right. All change is not bad, and all change is certainly not comforting. I hope these spaces continue to be built where white America can talk to itself, almost like in the mirror, and say, look, we have a lot of shit we need to deal with right now, and we're kind of perpetrating it whether we like it or not. Whether we choose to address it, whether we choose to ignore it, there's somehow a negative impact or consequence from anything that we do. So let's figure it out and try to mitigate as much of the negative consequences as possible and actually learn the true value of allyship to communities that have always faced injustice since the culmination of this country. Yes, absolutely. So, and and, you know, something that I've noticed 
as I as I kind of start to wade into this, be, you know, and, and I really think that I am I was blessed to be born gay because I think otherwise I would have no clue if I didn't have that minority experience, then I would be I really think that I I would probably be an alt right guy. If I'm being 100% honest, you know, I'm born here in the South. I grew up in, in kind of reactionary and, and conservative circles. That's what was normal to me. And then suddenly, you know, in high school, I discovered that I'm gay. And if it weren't for that experience of being a minority and, and that allows me kind of a measure of empathy for other minority groups, it doesn't mean that it's the same by any means, but it but it it provides me a point of empathy. <laughs> like I can kind of get this. If it weren't for that, I don't think I would be where I am. Um, one of the things that I have noticed, as you know, as I kind of wade into this conversation, is that there are a lot of people in white progressive circles who will say, oh my God, that's horrific. This is awful. This is terrible. And then do nothing. And it, and that it really is like my, my partner, John showed me a meme and it was like, you know, a week, <laughs> the meme said, you know, a week later in, in New Zealand, they're, <laughs> they're putting, you know, greater restrictions on guns and, you know, just all of this stuff, all of this immediate swift action that they're taking. And the and then the the heading said, it seems like you didn't even try thoughts and prayers, <laughs> but that's a criticism of us. It's a criticism of, I think, white America, where we rely on thoughts and prayers and we imp and we try to empathize and we say, oh, that's terrible. This is awful. I'm going to pray for you. And then at the end of the day, nothing changes. Do, yeah. you, think, do you think that's an accurate <laughs> depiction of what's going on? Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think it's also speaking to a little more than white America. I think it's speaking to generally privileged America. Yeah. Um, a lot of people that are reaping the benefits of that privilege wherever they stand in our society are able to step away from the lens and say, oh, I can offer these very simple, you know, non-tangible, non-physical things, and I feel like I have done my service. When, as a matter of fact, we know that there's so many easy things that we can do to make these things be prevented. How yes. many mass shootings have we had in the past several years. It's in the Hundreds. thousands. It's in the thousands. It's the in the thousands point. now, yeah. Exactly. And I think that speaks more to how much we are bought than we care about yes. the situation. Yeah. And I, and I think in congressional and legislation spaces, that's very, very clear that money is talking more than anyone else. Um, but in general society, I think it's very, very easy to not step in a space where you get affected when you are also the same person perpetrating this idea that you can do nothing about it. Yeah. And it becomes, it, it just becomes a norm to say, oh, I will at most offer my sympathy because I don't know how to connect because that's never happened to me before. But because that has never happened to me before, I can't do anything anyway. Yeah. And that already starts, starts the cycle of, well, the more apathetic I become to the process, the less I can do. Right. You know, I, I, I think it was, um, uh, oh, um, Zizek, who's, uh, you know, um, 
you know, a, a, a Marxist philosopher guy. Um, but he talks about the limitations of empathy and, and it's like, let, and he, and he was basically talking to, you know, white progressives, like let's talk, let's stop focusing on empathy and feeling and just start focusing on human rights. And we just need to care about human beings and provide for their needs, regardless of what you feel about them. Let it's backwards. It, it's all backwards. Let's let's put feelings on the back burner and focus on action. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but but that to me is helpful. Like let's stop indulging in in this. You know, emotion has a place. Like these stories are important. You know, it's important to to connect and empathize with other people but not when they take when that takes the place of action and people feel like because there's empathy that's all we have to do that is the end of our work and then we put a hashtag on instagram or twitter and then it's done that's it you know what i'm saying and 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 so it's almost like it's backwards we need to put action first and foremost Mm, mm. Uh, i I don't know if you agree with that what do you think of that um i agree to an extent i think you're right if okay i think you're right to an extent emotions are not allowed to replace action that's not the rule each of them has to be present in a process to be able to help um heal the wounds that are are existing and make sure that those wounds never take place again but in a society that is already very driven by both emotion and action they have to still play an interconnected role Mm, yeah Communities cannot build themselves on action if they don't have an emotional connection to each other. And the the ability for communities that are indifferent to one another, that are at conflict with one another, don't begin to build the actual bonds that they need to emotionally or socially, then you can't actually lead to a sustainable action that's going to lead to long-term change. I think that's really wise, and I and I think that's true. So at the beginning, when you were talking, you talked about the importance of discomfort, like entering uncomfortable places. And what does that look like for you? Like, like what kind of uncomfortable places are you inviting people into? That's a really hard question to answer because that discomfort doesn't look the same to everyone. Mm, yeah. Um the most basic discomfort would be to talk to someone that you would never talk to. And that in itself can take people weeks, if not months, to really build up the energy and the willingness to do. Um, I really engage in that discomfort in much more grandiose ways, like when I marched at the border in front of Border Patrol, um, where I had to face off officers who were in a space of emotional investment like I was, which is very rare for law enforcement to do. They're supposed to be stoic. They're supposed to be separated with that emotional idea from the situation. But the problem was there was so much deep spirituality and sense of interconnectedness among us as clergy and activists that I think it threw off the border patrol because a lot of them were way more angry and frustrated with the situation than we would have anticipated. The officer in front of me, whose name I will remember but not mention, was grinding his teeth. His face was pure red. There was a sense of of wanting to attack me in his eyes that I would never hope to an enemy of my own 
Mm. Yeah. And to have that kind of connection with someone emotionally who you think is supposed to be neutral and there to protect and serve you is scary. Yes. And it is almost to a point where you fear what might happen next. Because the day we did that demonstration was the same day that seven-year-old died of dehydration at the border in Texas. And there was a point of apathy, there was a point of disengagement and negligence. That Border Patrol, that ICE, and that other entities within our administration are showing that is proving to us that there is an apathy, a lack of emotional connection, a lack of responsibility that's keeping them in a place of moral decay. And we have to round it up and bring them back to that. When we serve a country of millions of people that come from all over the world, the reason why we're objective is so that we can be contextual with our constituency, not just objective. Not everyone can can benefit and reap from the same institutions when they're built on the backs of those that have been oppressed and marginalized. You can create legislation that hopefully encompasses everyone, but when you continue to inhibit and to exacerbate these institutions, no one else is going to benefit except the very same white America that thinks all lives matter. Right. I think that's very, very well said, and I don't really have much to add to that. And so the discomfort that you're talking about is an invitation to, you know, for everyone to enter into a realization of this state of affairs that and and it's an invitation for people like that Border Patrol guy that you were talking to to enter into that that place of extreme discomfort. And that's hard. Right. That's scary. Yes, and, and it's a discomfort that, you know, you don't really want to think about when the person across from you is holding a weapon oh that my could God. potentially be aimed at you. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, I think th- but I think this conversation also has to go out to all of those within insular spaces, within communities of color and minority faith traditions that are experiencing the same discomfort, but for different reasons. Could you talk about that some? Sure. Um, so I come from two religious communities. Um, I, my father is Hindu and my mother is Sikh. Um, Both communities in the United States have had history here since the 1880s, coming to uh, Angel and Ellis Island during the immigration sort of influxes. Um, And since then, both communities have faced a lot of backlash, a lot of discriminatory instances. Um, There have been Supreme Court cases that have ruled out um, Indian communities from coming to the United States and gaining citizenship at any point. Um, And these reformations, these processes that have allowed now South Asians to come to the United States now have created thriving communities. But the problem is the same ideas that we sort of focus on with just white America can take place in spaces where minority communities are thriving as well. Mm. And I know that's a very hard thing to really consider because we usually like to pin it as, well, white America does a lot of things and then we have all of these other communities. The problem is we still have to deal with patriarchy. We still have to deal with socioeconomic status. We still have to deal with forms of racism and colorism as well. And if we don't learn to... Yeah, and if we don't learn to actually look into those communities and say that we won't thrive until we look at that scope of social justice and apply it to every lens and situation or scenario that we belong to, then we can't thrive. So 
Okay, I, I have so many questions here. This is really fascinating. So, like, case in point, I think the gay community can be very sexist. Like, is that an example of what you're talking about? Like, yes. you know, like, you know, we in a, you know, those of us in the gay community are, um, we're, we're struggling with the reality of sexism <laughs> in, in our culture, especially in white gay spaces and white male gay spaces. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or like, I don't know, I've, I brought this up in my in my interview with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, but like, um, I don't know if you've watched the, ha- the Handmaid's Tale, where there are women who are enforcers of that regime, mm-hmm. you know, and do you think that there are, um, do you think that there's a popular perception that it is? white America versus minorities, that it really, do you think that there is this perception that, that these systems of corruption or, or power and supremacy don't exist within minority groups and that it really is kind of this pure, (laughs) you know, this pure battle of good and evil. Do do you think that that exists? Do you think that perception exists? I mean, I think the perception may exist among a very small group of people. Right. What I think we're not willing to address in the larger conversations is that the same people that actually address this idea of the privileged white America that oppresses and marginalizing us are also the same people that call out the BS from our own communities. And it's the same communities that backlash and say, how can you say something like that when the reality is we're not looking at a different situation, we're looking at a mirror. Yes. Okay, so I want to put a flag in that because that's really important. There is a misconception and I and you know I asked that question kind of because on the internet in in white spaces on the internet there is a misconception that social justice people working for racial equality and and equality of the minorities that they frame it that we frame this as this epic kind of comic book Marvel battle between the absolute good of the minorities versus the absolute evil of the white people. Mm-hmm. And that is propaganda that it isn't that we, we don't see the world that way. Mm-hmm. And, and so breaking down that stereotype, do you, I don't know. Are you following what I'm saying? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That, that I do. it is. And that is used. That narrative is used to discredit mm-hmm racial mm-hmm. you know racial justice right you know right. like i don't know i don't know if i'm making any sense but no you absolutely are i think i think it is very important that we handle the elephant in the room that is you know n- this white nationalism and supremacy that puts every community at risk that is sort of without a question I think it's also very important, though, that you don't ignore the baby elephants in the room that might grow <laughs> to become something bigger. Okay, so what are and those baby would, elephants? And the baby elephants are definitely patriarchy. Okay. The one that exists throughout every skin color, throughout every cultural and religious community, um, that does not, that perpetuates, you know, the submission of a woman and does not yeah. promote their equity and upliftment. Yeah. Um, looking at the elephant that is, you know, money, and that the money that you have is what defines your experience in any part of the world. Mm. Um, And that me as a person that fights for social justice 
Um, I was asked about this in an interview the other day. If I look at in, uh, social justice differently here in the United States, or if I focus on, let's say, politics in India right now. Mm. And my answer to that was contextually, yes. Fundamentally, no. Mm. Because if I change the the base level of what is social justice and human rights to me, and I change which groups get it and don't get it, that means I'm not striving for social justice. I'm striving for community interests. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm tracking with that. You yeah. know, I, I so appreciate you coming on and educating me because I am I feel like I'm not a very sophisticated thinker about a lot of this stuff yet, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> Don't look at me as sophisticated. Well, <laughs> compared to me, well, compared to me, you are because I mean, this is the stuff you live and breathe, and um, you know, I I feel like it's kind of my duty to just kind of flaunt my ignorance out there so that other white people can see it and can learn from from it, you know, <laughs> and can kind of see it see see themselves in that mirror. Mm-hmm. So this is a question that I was kind of wanting to wait till the end to ask, but I'll just go ahead and ask it now. What is there, you may, I mean, and maybe you don't know, but what am I missing? What would you, so far in this conversation, encourage me to do or see differently? Are there any gaps that you think are important that I'm missing? Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of curious about where this question is coming from. <laughs> I think for me, the question is coming from the acknowledgement Okay, let me let me just give some background. Sure. I was born to a powerful former plantation family mm-hmm. who owned slaves mm-hmm. and I grew up with, you know, we weren't we weren't a conf- you know, we a very educated family, but still I grew up in southern white spaces where there wasn't much guilt. Mm. over us owning slaves. Mm. And that was passed down to me in a way that I now realize informed my worldview in really atrocious ways. Mm. I wouldn't say that I was, I'm I'm not going to say that I was an out-and-out white nationalist, not at all, but I held assumptions about the world that I now acknowledge Mm. were deeply horrific. Mm. And And I feel like I am in the process of repenting from that, mm. of turning and repenting. Mm. And so now my, my question is always, mm. I, know, I know that I'm always missing something. I know mm. that I'm always not seeing a crucial piece of the puzzle in terms of how I am enabling supremacy mm. culture. Mm. Mm. And because this stuff is so deeply embedded and it's slow, does, am, are you tracking? Am I, mm-hmm. am I making mm-hmm. sense? And, and mm-hmm. so basically, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, of educating myself and others mm-hmm. because I know that the gaps in our understanding are so huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What's your response to that? I think my response to that is you're already doing a better job than I think you're giving yourself the capacity to think about because because you're willing to admit that. Yeah. Admission in itself is a very 
big and probably the first step of the entire process. Yeah. If you recognize this and instead of saying, I don't know what to do and just sort of sit on this idea that you should be guilty about it, Mm. you're instead saying, no, I need to address it for myself and for my community and see how I can uplift others. Mm. And it's the exact same way that I would argue every other white person should look at this process. If you reap the benefits from generations of oppressing other people, it's kind of hard to really step into the light and say, oh, I want to help people because I'm trying to make up for the past sins of my ancestors. Yeah. But at the same time, it gives you a better sense of being a good ally when you're willing to admit all of that. Yeah. but also trying to strive to be the best ally that you can be. Yeah. You are not speaking for anyone. You are just helping them. You are not giving anyone a space to make you feel like a white savior. You are just standing by their side, making sure that they get the time, the resources, and the energy they deserve, and the justice that should mm. come as the end result every single time. Mm. And if you don't learn to use every part of those resources that you have at your your disposal, it's because it takes a lot of learning to see that as benefits to give to a community in need, not as just something that you're holding in your hand and saying, what have I done? What have my people done? Mm, Yeah. You know, one of the things that I just keep coming back to is, so I'm a 12 stepper um, Mm. and Mm. the four, I forget if it's the fourth or fifth step. I think it's step number five to make a fearless moral inventory. Mm. And I just keep coming back to that. Like mm. as to, and, and one of the, one of the things that I've realized and, you know, my, my co-host Danielle and I, we had a really long and, and difficult conversation about on the show about our white privilege. And one of the, one of the kind of the revelations that I had in that conversation was, I'm not responsible for the sins of my forefathers, mm-hmm. but their prejudices, their crimes have carried down to me and have infiltrated my worldview, thereby making it my sin because mm-hmm. I continue, I continued to live it. Mm-hmm. I continued to unconsciously marginalize. And I can say that uh, without much shame now. You know, I think it's important for us to be able to say, I have been part of these systems of power and supremacy without shame. To, you know, to be able to confront these things and confront the shame and to be able to get to a point to just say, this is just where I've been. This is just the. This is just what it's been, and it's time to change it. Um, and and to not get and to get to a point where we're not one hundred percent bogged down mm-hmm. in uh, in the in that shame. And I think that that's a real problem for a lot of white folks. Is mm-hmm. is the shame? You know, the white fragility and white shame. Like, oh my God, there have been times when I feel like I could die of white shame just like drop dead of a heart attack because it was so intense and to just get over that and Mm -hmm. to just not take it personally um here's a question that i sometimes uh here's a question that i sometimes worry about and it's a question that i ask from my perspective as someone who's gay and i found 
conversations like this, you know, clueless straight people wanting to do good, wanting to be better people. But I found the conversations and I still sometimes find them really exhausting, really overwhelming and sometimes really hurtful. Is that the case with this conversation right now with me? And if so, how can I do better? No, I actually don't find this conversation hurtful because I've been so accustomed to it. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so you know, you keep you when the pain starts becoming, you know, you start hurting because you're not doing the thing. It seems almost kind of like I'm torturing myself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, because it's it's become so habitual. Um, I, when it when it comes to having the same conversations over and over again. I can't be in a space of anger because I know that most people are starting off at square one with these conversations. Yeah. And to us, the challenge of being repetitive is why do I need to keep stating something? Like, can't you go to a resource and learn it your damn self? Like, why do why do you have to keep asking me, like, what does it see, feel like to be Indian in this space? Or what does it feel like to be Hindu or Sikh in this space? Mm. Um, and it's like, you would think that people sort of at a larger sense would grab onto the perspective or the idea of what exists as our experience. Um, but at the same time, you also can't, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt that they're now finally entering the conversation you wanted them to enter. If they have yes. a lot of questions, yes. they need them answered or else that dissatisfaction is going to eat them alive. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I find that that conversation very often in POC spaces and in LGBTQ spaces to be very common because when you consistently have to explain yourself, it's because you just want to feel like people should know these basic things about you, just like you yes. would a typical cisgender, white, um, Christian, even, or, or um, affluent American. Yes. Those are things we know. We have the chart in front of us that already set out. <laughs> Why can't it be the same way for us? Why the hell do we have to keep explaining ourselves over and over again? Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is it's because people don't know and understand that stuff for what is at its root because it's not normal. Mm -hmm. It's not seen as normal. We haven't normalized it yet. Mm -hmm. If you're an LGBTQ person who happens to also be a person of color, that's a whole nother layer. <laughs> yes, it is. Exactly. And, you know, the the fatigue. Okay, really quick PSA for, for cis white folks out there. Don't just grab a random person of color and, and start asking them these questions. Like, please, only do so with, with people, you know, who, who are who are courageously volunteering themselves for, for the aggravation, like, <laughs> like our guest here. <laughs> yes, no, and, that's exactly You know, like only, you know, there are people who, who are very long-suffering, um, who, like Tahil here, who is willing to do this. But otherwise, don't, don't have these conversations <laughs> please let yes <laughs> yes I, I i actually i i i changed the wording to that a little bit okay H have the conversation with someone who is mutually invested in having the conversation with you yes yes that can be a person that's on the first step process and trying to you know finally sort of not look at all white people as being evil sure and going into that space and saying, okay, I need to remember that this person is newly understanding this conversation about humanizing me, and I need to reciprocate. 
Mm. Yeah. Or you can be in conversation with those like myself or like thousands of others, if not millions of others at this rate, who are willing to have the conversation because they're accustomed to answering these questions and are willing to be uncomfortable in that way because they've been that way so consistent. Yeah. I think that's really wise. And I think that's a really wise and important distinction. Yeah, because you never you never want to force anyone to have a conversation like this. They yeah. have to be willing to have it to be able to thrive in it. Yes. And if we don't learn to build institutions or structures that allow those conversations to happen organically, just like we're having on this podcast, you won't actually see a change in the social condition. Right, right. Okay, so so that's really fascinating, that, that idea of building the context and institutions so that these conversations can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that look like in your work? What kind of strategic work are you doing mm. to, to create those spaces? Mm. Well, that's actually a really helpful plug. Into yes. the organization that I work in. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I work in an organization called Brave New Films um, that is a social jo- justice documentary company based here in Los Angeles. We serve the entire country in being able to talk about systems of injustice and many deep issues that exist in current events, whether we're talking about systems of mass incarceration, uh, immigration, bail, racism, you name it, and we probably have some sort of film on it. Um, we make feature-length films, but we also make very short videos that are more tangible and easily more um, disseminated for communities to watch. Mm. And my role is mainly to go into communities of faith, spirituality, and moral conscience to talk about how we have a role to be more civically engaged and responsible because these issues are taking place and they are affecting our communities. So there are already institutions and structures available to us called houses of worship, called organizations, called whatever you want to call it, where you could potentially take our films, go into those spaces and have the organic conversations and action plans to be able to get involved yourself. That's awesome. So basically what you're doing is you're creating the material and and kind of the structure so that people can enter these really awesome, uncomfortable places. Exactly. Um, and, and to kind of, I don't know, make, pave the path for them to walk. Exactly. Because a lot of the times it's less about the physical structure and more about the methodology of facilitation that helps us better engage in a conversation. So we can have grandiose conversations at the United Nations, for example, but we know that the entity still sits sort of as a, oh, we're all like these nations gathered together and we can't really make decisions. So, you know, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a lot of grassroots groups around the country that are saying, oh my gosh, there is a big problem with cash bail and it is socioeconomically flawed. Or there are all of these people being detained at our border who are just seeking asylum, who are undocumented and just want better futures for themselves. What can we do as these local communities? Well, our films go in and first educate you about the issues at hand, not just by telling you, you know, this is the information, these are the numbers, these are the statistics. 
you also get to learn about the very real stories that you need to know to take us back to that original conversation on the emotional connection and why there needs to be a willingness from your part to be able to help those people because you want to. Once you have those resources available to you and you show them within your communities, we also have a process to help facilitate the dialogue so that you can start creating those tangible solutions in how it, however contextually is relevant to your community. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, you know, like when I hear stuff like this, I get really excited. Like this is, this is awesome, hopeful stuff. Like situation, the situation is bad as is demonstrated by the shooting in New Zealand, but it's, uh, it's also hopeful, you know, there, there's hope we can, there, there are ways to move forward. So you are, an interfaith minister or what's your official t- are you a minister are you the minister term is a very loaded thing I okay mean, I, <laughs> um so just to give a bit of background information so i do have like that that you know 30 second online ordination thing yes uh to help people get married so in that sense i am technically ordained yes um by by the state of california yes okay <laughs> but um, my relationship with the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles and that leadership role was actually a term and a process created by the staff and the bishop of the diocese, who said that rather than hiring a full-time person who is an Episcopalian doing this work for us, with us, let's look at young leaders in the community that don't belong to our tradition and give them the leadership role so that they can build up their momentum, That's but also awesome. strategize and be the bridges between their communities and the diocese. That's awesome. I'm I'm Episcopalian. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a queer, witchy, heathen Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> as well as other things i'm just curious do you are you still a believer are do you still believe in god and if so um in which tradition are like are you still a sick and or and or hindu i am still equally sick and hin- equally hindu okay. uh, that has just become sort of etched in every part of my being yes. i would say i did come from an upbringing here in los angeles that taught me that learning about different religions and different ways of understanding the world strengthened my worldview yeah. rather than challenging it or deteriorating it because curiosity really appeals to me. So seeing how different people approach the same issue in different ways is what makes me really want to appreciate, but sometimes also be disappointed in the human experience, <laughs> <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. Um, and I think... Now that I do this work full time, I know that my worship is best manifested when I strive for the justice of others. Yes. And if I can't learn to use that energy for something like striving for justice, then I have to manifest it through my compassion, through the truth that I seek in the world, through every single part of me that brings out the the virtuous part of me. Yeah. Um And sometimes it can be a challenge when you have to see all of these injustices sort of happen back to back. I mean, 
Thursday night we had the Christchurch situation happen. In Queensland, in in England, a person drunk drove into a mosque. Oh God! And started I insulting even... people, which is which is separate from maybe a narrative of showing white supremacy or nationalism per se, but it doesn't help exacerbate the emotions that are already present from a very difficult time. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we're just learning, I think, today that a um, a shooting happened in Utrecht, which I'm forgetting where that is in Eastern Europe or in Turkey. Mm. Um, sh- a shooting took place today as well, which means we're, the news cycle is not stopping. Yes. And the problem is we're trying to, like, take a step back and just take a breather. Yeah. And... This has to be a time where we do this, because if we don't learn this process of self-care, this ability to recharge ourselves during a lot of tough times, we're not going to be able to do the work in that same powerful and efficient way. Mm. So what does that self-care look like for you? <laughs> uh, sometimes I really don't know. <laughs> Quite frankly, I, I just did a workshop about this in Chicago after um, a few colleagues invited me to to host a space for one of their fellowship programs to do this. Um, mm. And I didn't, I couldn't answer the question then. I can't answer it now. But um, I know a lot of my work is deeply rooted in me sort of praying and meditating. Um, it is really connected to a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I've told this to people time and time again. If I did not have the ability to laugh or make jokes, I would probably be a wanted man in like 13 countries. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> um, and more importantly, I think just being in community with others. So not just seeing self-care as me being by myself doing my thing, where that time is really important. I'm a very big believer in collective care, uh, where I am within community with my friends, my loved ones, people that I share faith with, people that I share work with, who I'm able to really just talk to and just be myself with. That yeah. to me is like the best form of self-care. Absolutely. I I 100% agree with that. And, you know, I, I get asked this question sometimes, you know, as I do this show and and I'm I've been having conversations about LGBT stuff for years now, years and years and years within the church. And and the thing that I tell people now is I don't come home to it. Like I, I come home to my wonderful partner and my three kitties and I have this very secure home. You know, I have this very secure space where I can just be myself, where I'm not a gay activist. Mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just myself with my wonderful, incredible partner. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel held, you know, and I have a group of friends who, who with whom I feel held. Right. And I don't know, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to do this. Right. And, and this actually brings up a, an important point with your PSA. Yes. That you mentioned before, because there are a lot of people that are doing this work as a daily grind. Yeah. That sometimes need the time to step away. Yes. So it may not be the most wise thing to say that, oh, because you're already doing this work, let me have this conversation with you now because you're already not sick of it, probably. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Absolutely. That's why I specifically mentioned the words if they're ready to have the conversation. Yes. In other words, it has to be consensual. 
Yes. Um, I, I, th- you know, consent is a very sexy thing all around. <laughs> I think it's a general good, good rule of thumb to yes. have with anything. Absolutely. Um, it, w- um, let me see. How do I want to frame this question? How, what pointers, if any, would you give people for starting this conversation? Like for people like me, I, I feel like I kind of just threw you into this conversation. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and I'm incredibly grateful for you. I'm incredibly grateful to you for being willing to have this conversation with me. But um, how would you go, How would what would you tell people who are curious about this? Mm-hmm. Um who who want to have these conversations what what pointers would you give them to to gauge whether there is a whether there is consent in this conversation does that make sense absolutely um the best way i think to gauge in this kind of dialogue um for a lot of the folks that are you know privileged and are curious about having these conversations should be to go to the to the spaces where victims are currently at. So since we're speaking about the context of Christchurch, show up. Show that you care enough to not just share your sympathy on social media, yeah, uh, but that you're willing to be in their sacred space to create that emotional bond. Because right now they need it. Mm, yeah. Islamophobia is not a new thing. Neither is anti-Semitism, neither is homophobia, neither are these anti-immigrant or xenophobic sentiments. We want to see you in that space to prove that you actually care. We don't want you, we don't want to hear the thoughts and prayers. We don't want to hear the, the social media posts that show you that you changed a filter or you changed your profile picture. Yes. If you don't learn to show up in the physical space, you're not committed. Mm, that's really important. That's really, really, really important. Okay, so would you recommend so so going about that, showing up for support at say mosques and and temples and so on and so forth? Yes, and and sometimes that's tough because it's a new space. It's a different religious space. Sure. Um, it's a space that might uh, conjure up uh, misconceptions. Mm. Take a breather learn about it in the ways that you find it most capable for you and then enter the space. Mm. You will be welcome. Mm. There's no question about it. Yes. Because you are there to support, you will be welcomed. Yes. And you can't enter with any assumptions that make, make it seem otherwise. And, and again, we have to remember that, that these contexts can change because sometimes when, the the other nuances pop up of you know intercommunity issues that take place that can be a different conversation but if we're talking about white america and the role that they need to play they should know that they're welcome to these spaces always mm. and that's probably one of the biggest responses and the biggest middle fingers you can give to the white nationalist and white supremacist narrative yes because they don't want you to build relationships. They want to divide and conquer. Yeah. And that's and this is a bit tangential because I was just having a conversation about this uh, after the Christchurch shooting is 
It's unfortunate that we've been entering spaces where when we jump back between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism or homophobia or anti-immigrant sentiment, that somehow we get caught up with the ways that we need to talk about it or the people that are not allowed to talk about it. And it causes us as different minorities to start being in conflict with one another. That conversation came up during the Women's March. That conversation has come up very often because of um, stuff that we've been dealing with with Congress and the new members of Congress, like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes. And the fact of the matter is, is they are bringing up new ways of, again, being uncomfortable, new ways of engagement, new ways of understanding the perspectives that we need to talk about. And the mm-hmm. fact that these folks are willing to show up and do that, knowing that it can cause them a lot of risk. Congressman uh, Omar has been facing a lot of threats. Yes. Uh, Cosme- uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Tlaib, we know that because they're just being themselves. And they're in positions of power doing that, which puts them at a very difficult point. But a lot of the reconciliation that's happening between communities because they don't understand each other with issues like... Um, Um, Israel and Palestine, because that's been at the center of a lot of the major conflicts taking place in the past year, is that they show up for each other when it's necessary to show up, and they have the difficult conversations when they're ready to have them. Yes, yes. And it requires you to show up. Mm. It really is that simple. It really is that simple. Yeah. I think that that is incredibly important and profound, the idea that the biggest middle finger you can give to white nationalism, to fascism, to the alt-right is to show up and for for minorities and within these spaces. Because it's true. I mean, that, that point you made is absolutely true about how they want to separate because of this misguided and horrific concept of purity. And right. And to and to just say fuck you <laughs> to to that and mm-hmm. and uh, and show up and and overcome the your own discomfort to show up. Um, I think that's incredibly powerful and a great note to end on. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, sharing this space with me. I'm really honored to have you on the show. The pleasure is all mine. I really appreciate it, Stephen. For people who want to kind of follow up with you and check out your work, where can they do that? Uh, they can visit me on social media by typing in my name or searching up Interfaith Man, which is my Twitter and Instagram handle. Awesome. And um, they are more than welcome to email me to ask more information about Brave New Films at mm-hmm. Tahil, T-A-H-I-L, at bravenewfilms.org. Beautiful. All right. Well, if ever you want to do this again, if ever there's anything on your heart and mind that you want to share with my audience, just let me know and you can come back on anytime. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleventy-Seven from the albums Bang and Whimper and Rad Science. You can find the albums on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to music. Special thanks goes out to my assistant, Justin Dozier Bryant. He does all of the graphics 
for each episode. So if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter or you uh, follow my blog at stephenbradfordlong.com and you like what you see, that is all Justin. Uh, So definitely uh, check out his Twitter and Instagram. You can follow his work there. He does really great stuff. This show, as usual, is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.